Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The jurors deciding on Barb Raber's fate were mostly young and female, thanks in large part to Assistant District Attorney Edna Boyle. She knew it would be much easier to get sympathy for Barbara Weaver with a panel that looked a lot like her. Before the trial, Judge Robert J. Brown went on a little field trip with these jurors. He wanted to show them the Weaver house and what he called the alleged crime scene. It was only a 15-minute ride from the courthouse in Worcester, but driving through white barns, windmills, and buggies has a way of making you feel worlds apart, especially when you're headed to a house marked by murder. As Judge Brown gave a tour of the conservative, pretty clean house, the jurors took mental notes. There was the birthday cake still sitting on the counter from Harley's birthday and cash sitting out in the open nearby. They began to get a sense of the Weaver family. Crayon drawings of birds were stuck on the refrigerator. A Bible sat proudly on a cabinet. There was also a wooden plaque with two hearts joined. Eli and Barbara's names were written on them, plus the date of their wedding. The boys' bedroom was outdoor-themed. There were antlers and the Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie series. Meanwhile, the girls' room was accented with a pink teddy bear and pink clothes on the floor, plus tiny furniture for a tea party. Judge Brown reminded the jurors not to share what they'd just seen with anyone or to watch any news coverage of the case, nothing that would influence their decision. Judge Brown was struggling to make sense of the case himself. In over 20 years as a trial judge, he hadn't seen many crimes involving the Amish. Only two instances of an Amish husband murdering his wife had been reported in America in more than 250 years. There was Edward Gingrich, who brutally beat his wife Katie to death in 1993. And Thomas Ballard, who shot a young mother to death and injured her three children before killing himself in 1995. And now, Eli Weaver and Barb Raber. Hi, welcome back to Case Closed from Macmillan Podcasts, the show where the bad guy doesn't get away with it. I'm Charlie Spicer. And I'm Christy Westgard. Last week, we listened in on Barb's jailhouse phone conversations. We saw her swing from defensive to apologetic with her husband, Ed. We also read the letters Eli wrote to his father-in-law and children. A new person entered the storyline, too. Ms. Jamie Wood, Barb's cellmate. And we ended with Eli taking a plea deal. Today, on our final episode of this case, we're taking you inside the courtroom for Barb Reber's trial. It's September 17, 2009, a Thursday. Just over three months have passed since Barb and Eli were arrested. So many Amish from Eli's community and Mennonites from Barb's came to watch that the trial had to be moved to a larger courtroom. And I want to point out some of the people that are in this crowd. There's Steve Chupp from the fishing party on the day of the murder. And there's also Mark Weaver. He's Eli's very devout Amish friend. 
And then there's Ed Raper. He'll be in the crowd every single day of his wife's trial. Here's how things are going to play out. Over the next three days, the assistant DA, Edna Boyle, will paint Barb as a woman who knew full well what she was doing when she fired the fatal shot into Barbara Weaver's chest. And Barb's public defender, Jonathan Leonard, will do everything in his power to discredit Eli. He'll tell the jury that Barb is another victim of his manipulation. Numerous people from Barb and Eli's life will testify. And then the most anticipated part of the trial, Eli will take the stand. Charlie, it's good to clarify here that Eli is not on trial because he took the plea deal to testify against Barb. Also, when we get the final verdict, know that it's only a pit stop in our story. We're also going to zoom out from the initial explosion to see what happened once the courtroom drama ceased. How did the Andy Weaver Amish community rebound? And did the Amish church make any changes to protect people like Barbara? That's all to come. For now, we're in the courthouse, where Barb is sitting at the defendant's table. She has on a simple skirt and striped blouse that accentuates her slumping shoulders. She's wearing smudged Coke bottle glasses. She'll spend most of the trial staring at the table, occasionally looking at Ed. Barb's attorney, Jonathan Leonard, is, as you mentioned, Charlie, a public defender. Barb had been working with another attorney, but Ed couldn't get the 35 k he needed to pay him, so Barb was assigned to Leonard kind of late in the game. Meanwhile, Eli had met with attorney Andrew Hyde, Andy for short, just two days after Barbara's death. It's looked down upon by the Amish to hire a lawyer. But Andy is known as the go-to lawyer for wayward Amish for his work on numerous cases involving the community. He can even be mistaken for being Amish himself with his scraggly, chest-length beard. When you ask Andy about his first meeting with Eli, he remembers how casual Eli was. When he warned Eli his services were expensive, Eli waved him off, saying it would be fine. But right before the trial, Eli told the court he needed free representation. As luck would have it, the court ended up assigning him Andy Hyde. They didn't check to see if Eli actually could pay. Maybe Eli bet the court would assign him to Andy because Andy had already done so much legwork for the case. If so, his bet paid off. So now Eli has a top attorney with intimate knowledge of his case for free. On top of this, the prosecution, so Edna Boyle's team, essentially had months to prepare its case against Barb. But Barb's lawyer, John Leonard, only had weeks to make Barb's defense. John Leonard was 40 years old at the time of this trial. He had dark, thinning hair and wire-rimmed glasses. And his MO was this. Convince the jury that Eli was a puppet master and Barb was another one of his puppets. He'd set her up to take the fall, but nothing proves she pulled the trigger. The murder weapon hadn't even been found. Plus, no trace of Barb's fingerprints were in the Weaver house. He also pointed out that Barb didn't get an attorney immediately after her arrest, meaning Barb had made a confession under extreme emotional distress. So could we really trust her statement? When Edna laid out the prosecution's case, she reminded the jury that it was Barb who'd looked up poisons, Barb who got sleeping pills for Eli, and Barb who bought a 410-gauge shotgun. So why wouldn't Barb be the one to fire it? The trial moved into witness testimony next. Edna may as well be a classical conductor for the way that she starts playing on the jurors' emotional strings with her witness lineup. She starts by putting Barbara's sister, Fanny Troyer, on the stand. And she wants Fanny to build sympathy for Barbara, which shouldn't be hard, especially because Fanny is seven months pregnant at this time. 
Fanny keeps referring to Barbara as her only sister and a dear friend throughout her testimony. She talks about her sister's troubled marriage to Eli, but she doesn't really need to say much to get the jury on her side. Next was Linda Yoder, the weaver's neighbor and the first adult to see Barbara after the kids discovered her body. She told the story of how Harley came running to her for help. She described Barbara's blue-tinged lips and her shock after pulling back the bloody comforter. Then Boyle brought up Alan Buxton. He was a computer forensic specialist who'd spent the past few months scanning Barb's laptop for evidence. Boyle asked him to summarize his findings. The list of Google searches he read off were explicit, and so, so damaging. Can the insecticide tempo kill a human being? What poisons kill humans? How to kill yourself with poison? How much lie can kill a person? Fastest poison to kill a person? How much rat poison will kill a person? Of the 40,000 searches he investigated, more than 800 were about poisons. The courtroom was stunned. And Edna Boyle was relentless. She brought up Captain James Richards next. James was in charge of the jail that Barb and Eli were held in and was brought to talk about the jailhouse calls. John Leonard objected to these calls. He questioned the translation, remember that the calls were made in Pennsylvania Dutch, and he pointed out how big chunks weren't translated at all, parts that would have put Barb in a kinder light, like when she asked about her children. He accused the police of fishing for parts that painted Barb as the killer. They were hiding the full picture to hurry along the trial. Judge Brown dismissed John's motion, though, and the calls remained in the body of evidence. Edna Boyle moved on to her next witness, state firearms expert John Gardner. He'd analyzed the crime scene and was the person to determine the murder weapon was a 410-gauge shotgun. He'd also figured the gun was pressed right up against the bedspread when it was fired. This is important to note because when Barb had first confessed, she said she fired from the doorway. When John Leonard came up to cross-examine Gardner, he asked leading questions. He implied that Gardner had only tested the firearms that the detectives had provided. But two 410-gauge shotguns found at Eli's were never tested at all. And what about the discrepancy in where the gun was fired? If Barb's version didn't match Gardner's facts, maybe her admission of guilt wasn't true either. Everything the audience had heard so far wouldn't prepare them for what was to come. Graphic autopsy photos and x-rays of the wounds and the pictures of the murder scene. The red of the comforter and Barbara's purple nightgown stood out against her pale, bloodless skin. There were also healing bruises on her legs that predated the murder. Fanny had said earlier that Eli was rough with Barbara during sex. Perhaps he'd inflicted those bruises the last time they'd been together. And at this point, the courtroom is stewing. Each new piece of evidence that Edna Boyle shows delivers a sucker punch to the stomach. For the people who knew and remembered Barbara as a youthful mother and a devout woman, these photos just obliterated that image. And then Edna called up Detective Maxwell to the stand and asked him about the text messages between Barb and Eli. She asked him to read the texts to the courtroom. Note that while we've seen some of these texts, this is the first time that Ed Raber, Mark Weaver, Steve Chupp, the whole Amish community, and the jury has even heard of them. They were about to get a grisly look into the minds of Eli and Barb. Do you think three cc's of that tempo would do it? 
just blow up the house or something Tuesday morning? Or come do her tonight, Barb, please. Please, Barb. I should just do it now. How am I supposed to see in the dark? Damn, Eli, I don't know if I can. It's too scary. Do you think I can drive in behind the pines? Yes. All John Leonard could do in his cross-examination was look for holes. He would point out that the messages didn't prove that his client had killed Barbara Weaver. He told the jury that Barb Raber became scared. She didn't think she could go through with it. But there wasn't much he could really say to defend Barb at this point. Next, John Leonard turned the focus to Barb Raber's confession. Detective Maxwell defended how he'd handled Barb's arrest and interrogation. He'd read her her Miranda rights twice. Barb had confirmed she understood. And her question, can I have a lawyer, was ambiguous. So John Leonard tried another point of entry. He confronted Maxwell about the still-missing murder weapon. Didn't that make the case against Barb Raber shaky? Couldn't Eli have the shotgun? Maxwell deflected his question with vague answers before finally agreeing, yes, it was possible Eli had the shotgun. Okay, there's one other person I want to mention who Edna brought up to testify, and that's Jamie Wood, Barb's cellmate. Remember that Jamie had gotten Barb to confide in her and took notes to share with the police in exchange for a lighter prison sentence? Well, Jamie began sharing what she'd found out with the jury. Edna knew John Leonard would try to turn the jury against Jamie to weaken her testimony. So Edna spent a good chunk of time asking those questions of Jamie herself. She asked Jamie to say what she was incarcerated for, petty theft and probation violation. She even pressed Jamie further to get her to admit that she'd also been charged with corruption of a minor. Better to have Edna get it out of her than to have Leonard make Jamie look like she's hiding something. Edna also wanted to establish Jamie's motivation for handing in these notes on Barb. Had she been promised anything by the detectives or judge for testifying? Jamie denied any self-serving motives. She said that she just felt sorry for the family. Leonard wasn't buying it. In his cross-examination, he revealed that in the letter Jamie had written to the judge, she dropped a line in her letter to the judge about possibly getting a reduced sentence. Jamie verified that this was true. He'd also brought up that Jamie had referred to Barb as her best friend, almost like a mother, and that she was hoping for her speedy release in these letters. But how could she turn on her best friend? Barb sat across from Jamie, shaking her head in disbelief at her testimony. John Leonard ended with what should have been a question, but was more of a declaration. He said, If they let you out early before your January out date, you're going to say no, I'm going to stay in custody. To which Jamie said, no, sir. We've seen the case from almost all vantage points, but there's just one more perspective to consider, that of Eli Weaver. When we come back from the break, it's finally his turn to uphold his end of the plea deal and testify against Barb. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Grunto Williams slips through. Here's a shot, and it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. Hammers it home! Oh my goodness! 
See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or a random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Eli entered the courtroom in an orange Wayne County prison-issued jumpsuit. He was shackled at his hands and his feet, which made his normal walk turn into more of a shuffle. When he got to the witness stand, deputies unchained his hands and he was sworn in. He had this long, bushy beard that made his boyish face seem younger, and he kept his eyes lowered. Boyle began by questioning Eli's marriage. How would he describe it? It wasn't the best, but we always tried to work things out the best we could. Did you have problems? At times, yes. And why did you have problems in your marriage? I guess I just didn't love my wife the way I should have loved her. But I want to remind you that this flies in the face of what Barbara had written in her diary. It seems we can't communicate, so how is this all going to get better? He's so on the defensive. He looks at me and lies. Sometimes I already know the truth. Other times I find out the truth later. So at this point, Edna starts to hone in on Eli's relationship with Barb. She asks him to define their relationship. And note that Barb is sitting just yards away. Knowing this, Eli kind of stammers through his response, but he essentially just says they were friends who had sex sometimes. And then he pinned the whole murder on her. She just kind of took it and ran with it, you know. Just like she's going to take it and try and find a way to help me, you know, get it accomplished. Apparently, Barb visibly slumped in her chair with every word. This is a man she was willing to kill for. And now she's realizing she might go to jail for life, and he really just used her. Eli said it was Barb who'd seduced him. It was Barb who'd gotten sleeping pills to overdose his wife. What she didn't know at the time was Eli had always intended to take them himself. Or so Eli said. His tactic through this whole questioning was to cast himself as the victim. Now's a good time to zoom out to the crowd. Eli's community has seen him go through cycles of rule-breaking and repenting their whole lives. If there is a person to call Eli's bluff, it's one of his community members. And they thought Eli was playing the Amish card to exploit people's sympathy. One man from Eli's community later said this about him. That guy was all about himself. He was a complete narcissist. He thought that everyone should kowtow to his needs. It was like his wife, his girlfriends, whatever, were only there to serve him. He was too selfish to kill himself. That's why he used Barb Raber. Also note in the statement that now people are starting to shift their perception of Barb, maybe even softening. One person in the courtroom said Barb was, quote, kind of pathetic in a way, like she might not be all there. Some even wondered if she was mentally challenged. Eli was, and this is a direct quote from a courtroom observer, a kind of wheeler-dealer who ran circles around Barb. She was no match for him. I thought of her as a kind of sad sex slave, if you want to know the truth. But did the jury feel the same? 
John Leonard came up to cross-examine Eli next. This was his chance to put Eli on trial in the metaphorical sense. He might have taken a plea deal, but Leonard would see to it that he was scrutinized as heavily as Barb. He swung hard from the very first question of, why? Why did Eli continue year after year to cheat and lie? And this is really the big question. Here's the opportunity for everyone to try and understand what might have been going through Eli's head as he continually cheated on his wife. But I'll tell you now that that question's not really going to get answered. Instead, Eli's testimony leaves the courtroom feeling colder. Everyone watching is going to see this emptiness that Detectives Maxwell and Chuhi had seen earlier. Eli said he craved freedom, but he had access to the outside world whenever he wanted it. So what did he really mean by freedom? If freedom wasn't about living as an English, what was it about? I ended up asking Greg what he thought Eli's motive for killing Barbara was since he's been so close to this case. And here's what he had to say about it. She was always the reason nagging at him to come home. And and it's like as long as she existed there, he's never going to be able to divorce her. You know, he could, but not really. You know, so she's there. And if she's gone, he can be looked at as, you know, a widower. And a great and a great guy, and even if he left the community later, or even if he was a widower, he could still have all the women he wanted. He just has to leave his farm to get them. Why get rid of Barbara? It's really because she's an anchor that he's got to cut loose. You know, that's what I think he was thinking. What's really devastating to think about is that I think Barbara sensed as much. She spent so much of her marriage trying to please Eli. Maybe it was because she loved him despite it all. But it's more likely that she was just trapped within a culture that put the onus of a good marriage on her. Let's go back to Eli's testimony, though. John Leonard is just about done with Eli, and he decides to drill him with a string of hard questions with no pause. You weren't concerned about the fact that your children weren't going to have a mother anymore? The prosecutor objected to this relentless grilling, but this time Judge Brown allowed Leonard to proceed. You were concerned about the fact that you wanted to be a womanizer. You wanted to be the Amish stud and continue relationships with different women, correct? Nope. Finally, after three painful days reliving the crime, the jury was dismissed to deliberate. Just five hours later, the panel came back with a verdict. It found Barb Raber guilty of aggravated murder plus a gun charge. Barb collapsed in her chair at the decision. She put her face in her hands on the table and started to cry. As the judge polled the jury on what was a unanimous vote, she sobbed over and over that she didn't do it. When the sheriff's deputies took her away, she continued to cry out that she was innocent. The next day, Eli was sentenced for complicity to commit murder. Once again, the courtroom was packed with members of the Amish community. They were eager to hear Eli's final words. What they got was a generic apology at best, simply that he was sorry and hoped everyone would forgive him. During his sentencing, Judge Brown took a moment to tell Eli that he could have made a different choice. He'd already left the Amish twice before, and he only needed to walk away a third time. Honoring the plea deal, though, Judge Brown gave Eli 15 years to life. That means he'll be just 45 years old upon release. 
He'll be eligible for parole in April of 2024, though he'll almost certainly be denied his first time. He's incarcerated in the Marion Correctional Institution and has been formally shunned by the Amish. The state asked for either life without parole or 30 years to life in prison for Barb. But John Leonard managed to argue for some parity between hers and Eli's sentences. So Judge Brown settled on 20 years to life plus three years on the gun charge. That'll make her 62 years old when she can walk free again. It's been just over a decade since Barbara's death, and the Amish community has really tried to distance itself from this case. Here's Greg with a little more on that. Here's the thing. They all read the book. We know that. But they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about the things that are bad. They don't want to expose, you know, what's behind that pretty package. But the reality is that this trial showed the public the more damaging and ugly sides of the Amish. We're going to look at the broader implications of this case soon. But first, let's talk about the aftermath within the immediate community. The two oldest Weaver children went to live with Fanny and Christy Troyer. They were separated from the three youngest who were placed with another relative. For a long time, all the children suffered from anxiety. Barb Raber's children seemed better in some ways since their mother's arrest. Their grades in school improved. The Mennonite congregation stepped in to take care of Ed and his sons. They loaned him money, interest-free, and they helped him get a mortgage so he could get out of the messy home he'd shared with Barb. The congregation still reaches out to Barb, too. The church set up a rotation of people to write to her and sends weekly reminders in its newsletter. But not everyone chooses to heed this reminder. In 2010, Barb actually tried to appeal her conviction. Her appeal was denied, though, but she continues to maintain that she is innocent. She's incarcerated in the Ohio Reformatory for Women. Her first date with a parole board is in April 2032. And over time, more people have seemed to view her with sympathy. Ed remained faithful to Barb. He visited her every few months and had no plans to divorce her. Unfortunately, he passed away on January 6th of 2016. Eli reportedly attends church services in prison. He rarely has visitors, although his fishing buddy, Steve Chupp, did make a handful of visits to give him some hope, and his parents still write to him, even though he's banned from their community. In his solitude, Eli has had time to consider his actions and maybe even to repent. In the early summer of 2011, Two years after the murder of his wife, Eli wrote a letter that was printed in The Budget, which is a weekly Amish and Mennonite newspaper. The letter was titled A Penitent Heart. It went like this. I want to apologize to my children, in-laws, family, friends, church, neighbors, and entire community for all the grief and pain I caused all of you in my involvement in the death of my wife and loving mother, Barbara Weaver. I'm sorry that due to my selfishness, All of you had to go through things that nobody should ever have to go through. I'm sorry for all the lies and heartache I put you all through while trying to be somebody I wasn't, and I'm sorry to everyone I misled. I pray that someday God grants me the opportunity to apologize and seek your forgiveness face to face. May God bless you all. Eli even planned to create some kind of group home that provided shelter and guidance for Amish members who'd strayed. But in 2015, it surfaced that Eli had privately been writing letters to newly widowed Amish women. 
he'd get their names and addresses out of copies of the budget. And this smells strongly of Eli's old tricks, finding a lonely woman and using her. Maybe he was trying to secure a place to go home to when he was paroled. We mentioned earlier that Barbara Weaver's death brought a lot of attention and scrutiny to the Amish on how they handle matters of abuse and other misconduct. The public reprimanded the Amish for keeping their own secrets. If Barbara hadn't been Amish, would she have gotten the support she needed to leave Eli? Barbara's childhood friend Ruby, this is the one with the Amish mother who got divorced, had this to say about the culture. Her church sweeps things under the rug and doesn't deal with problems. But on a more encouraging note, she says that counseling is more accepted in the community. And the Weaver's old neighbor, Samuel Miller, said there's a tendency to better recognize danger. He says church leaders helped a woman in a physically abusive marriage move out of her home shortly after the case. But Andy Hyde, the go-to Amish lawyer, isn't so sure. He has never heard of an Amish domestic violence case reaching the court. He says bishops will tell victims not to report. He also says he knows about a lot of molestation crimes that are kept hush-hush and women who are still told they can't leave their marriage. He's represented formerly Amish women trying to get custody of their children who get zero support from their community. And in some ways, this case maybe even pushed the Amish further into their beliefs, especially regarding technology. The way that Eli used tech reinforced the notion that it's evil. And that's made the Amish even more hesitant to relax some of their rules. But the irony is this. It was also technology, those text messages, that allowed police to link Eli and Barb to Barbara's killing. Without those, they might have pulled off a perfect murder. This case shows how the voice of a victim can be kept quiet. Through it all, Barbara's family has stayed relatively silent beyond Fanny's testimony. Some people see their actions as a sign of strength. Others call it cold. To the Amish, it's just a way of honoring their values of non-judgment and forgiveness. Here's what I'll say. Greg told me that when he was beginning to write about the case, he got a letter from Eli asking him not to. But Greg's not bound to Amish customs, so he ultimately decided to move forward. And that's surprising for a person like Eli. I think he's gotten used to benefiting from taking advantage of Amish goodness. He felt a real sense of belonging and power in this world with rules that he could shape and bend. No wonder that he kept going back. Eli knew that as long as he begged forgiveness, his community would take him back. He saw the Bible's teaching as loopholes. But for Barbara, her faith was the only place she could go to to escape her reality and to make sense of Eli's cruelty. I often think of Christ's words... Forgive him, for he knows not what he does. We've reached the end of Barbara Weaver's story. Thank you so much for listening. But we're not done with the season yet. Next week, we have something special for you. We're sitting down with New York Times bestselling author Linda Castillo. She's known for writing thrillers all about retribution in the Amish community, and I think you'll really like our conversation. For more about Barbara and Eli Weaver, check out Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris's book, A Killing in Amish Country. And before I go, here's a preview of what you'll hear from Linda Castillo next week. The husband has the final say, 
And that's not to say that the that the wife doesn't have a voice. She definitely does. And, and when it comes to church matters and whatnot, uh, they do have a vote. But women generally uh, submit to their husbands. The only resources that, that an Amish woman really has is the bishop or the deacon or the preacher. And those are basically the elders of the church. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It's hosted by Charlie Spicer and Christy Westgard and produced by Christy Westgard. Scripting support was provided by Becky Celestina. Production editorial support is provided by Jasmine Festina. Thanks also to our voice actors, Matt DeMaza, Sarah Grill, Robert Allen, Katie Rabitsky, Alyssa Keene, Jasmine Festino, Leon Profiter, Emily Miller, and Morgan Ratner. You can find more information about Macmillan Podcasts at macmillanpodcast.com. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N podcasts.com. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through. Here's a shot and it's in. This is a game changer for sports. Savinia takes a shot herself. Hammers it home. Oh my goodness. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com.